But let's start with Ephesians uh, chapter 4 as our basis or our opening here for what we'll be looking at. This was preached through just a few weeks ago in the main service, but look with me beginning at verse 11, beginning at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. May the Lord honor the reading of His Word. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, and this is what I want you to note, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love is what we're going to be looking at this morning, and what that not only what that looks like, but how it looks. We probably all have uh, different thoughts in our minds of what speaking the truth in love looks like or has looked like in the past if someone has come up to you and confronted you. And for many of us, that uh, confrontation or rebuke that you received probably looked like or at least felt like anything but love. Rebuke is the word the Bible uses for bringing truth to bear on a life where change is needed. Let me repeat that. Rebuke is the word the Bible uses for bringing truth to bear on a life where change is needed. I think rather, but for most of us, uh, the concept or the term rebuke, uh, we would rather have a, a root canal without pain meds than, than even the thought of someone coming up to us and confronting us or rebuking us. It doesn't bring about much thought of delight that someone would come to me and rebuke me or confront me. Over the last few months, uh, as we've studied this, this idea of, of ministering to others the Word of God, we've looked at two of the four concepts of personal ministry. We've looked at love. We've looked at knowing, getting to know other people in relationships. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this thought of speak. How can we speak to one another the truth and love? Turn in your Bibles with me over to Leviticus. For the remainder of our time in the Word this morning, we'll be centering on this chapter here in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. Let's look at verse 15. Turn back one page in your Bible if you need to do that. Look at the beginning of verse 19 just for context here. Just scan over it with your eyes. You see the Lord calling to Moses about how people should relate to him. 
and then how we should relate to one another, and then we get to 15. This is where we'll center for the remainder of the morning, 15 to 18. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A couple points that we want to look at in this passage that Tripp points out is, number one, if you're taking notes, confrontation is rooted... Confrontation is rooted in submission to the first great commandment. Confrontation is rooted in submission to the first great commandment. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If you look at verse 3 of, of Leviticus 19, you see the words, I am the Lord your God. Verse 4 lists that as well. I am the Lord your God. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 14. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And even have that same phrase there in the middle of verse 16, or at the end of verse 16. I am the Lord. Confrontation or rebuke, if you read a different translation of this passage, rather than say um, reason frankly, it would say rebuke your neighbor frankly. Confrontation or rebuke is rooted in submission to the first great commission. God intends confrontation or rebuke in relationships to be an expression of submission to God first. It's God that's holy. We are not. It's God that is the one to be worshipped above all things. We are not. And on the flip side of that, a failure, when we fail to confront others with the truth, it's rooted in our tendency to not be submissive to God. It's rooted in our tendency to not be submissive to God. Tripp says this, to the degree that we, love, that we give the love of our hearts to someone or something else, to that degree we lose our primary motive to confront. But if we love God above all else, confrontation is an extension and expression of that love. And we'll look at that a little bit more this morning. To the degree that we give the love of our hearts, meaning rather than giving it to God, to someone or something else rather than God, to that degree, we lose our primary motive to confront. But if we love God above all else, confrontation is an extension and expression of that love. So confrontation really has nothing to do with my own desires, but rather it's a vertical submission that drives us in delight to draw others into a love relationship with God, into a more loving relationship with God, marked by submission to Him and marked by obedience to His will and His ways. That's why we would confront. Not because those people are different from me and I want those people to be like me, but rather mutually together we want to be more like Christ. We want to honor God more with our lives. So number one, confrontation, according to the principles we can draw in this passage, confrontation is rooted in submission to the first great commandment. And then number two, Confrontation is rooted in the second great commandment. That's probably obvious. Matthew twenty two thirty nine, Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 17 there of Leviticus 19. 
but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, rooted in the second great commandment. Frank rebuke is in Scripture joined at the hip with love. Notice it's right in that same passage with, with love. In fact, it's, and we'll look at this in a little bit, it's contrasted in verse 17 with hate. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason, or we could say an expression of love out of to God first and to our neighbor second, is rebuking or reasoning frankly with them. Notice this, frankness isn't an unrighteous anger. It isn't rude or arrogant. It's love. It's done in love. But it's also not defined by being nice. We have a tendency in this day and age to look to be nice. And yet, our niceness tends to not always be an expression of love as much as it may be an expression of fear. Fear of man. We often don't love out of the desire to be nice. And we've all been in those conversations and they're difficult. I'm not making them, trying to make them trifle conversations. They're very difficult conversations. When you know you have to say a hard thing and everything in you just grates to have to actually say those words. And so you sort of hem and haul around them trying to be nice and maybe you get to the end of the conversation and you go, oh man, I just didn't get out what I wanted to really say. Well, I would... I would point you to that difficulty not being a bad thing. In fact, it's probably the Holy Spirit helping you not say something out of a wrong attitude. It's, it's sort of this hint, it's hedge that the Lord gives us to make sure that we are checking ourselves and why we're saying things and in the mean, uh, the way that we are saying it. But at the end of the day, if it needs to be said, we need to speak the truth in love. Tripp says, it goes as far as mentioning how we we oftentimes go as so go so far excuse me as to convince ourselves that we are not speaking to another person in the way that needs to be spoken truth and love frankly rebuking them if necessary because we love the other person when in reality we fail to speak because we lack love let me repeat that again trip mentions how we go so far as to convince ourselves that we are not speaking because we love the other person, when in reality we fail to speak because we lack love. Now, as I repeat that phrase, is there a verse of Scripture that jumps into your mind or your thought process that demands to be explained because of that? That's one. What about 1 Peter 4, 8? Look in your Bibles over there. Go over there with me. This thought of, so wait a minute, if I don't speak when I should and I'm not loving, how does that balance with 1 Peter 4, 8? I think 1 Peter has vacated my Bible. There it is. Okay. Let me read it. We would know this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Wait a minute. Mr. Tripp, you're telling us that if I don't speak, that I'm not being loving, and yet the Bible is telling me, which is our authority, 
that love covers a multitude of sins. There's nothing in there about speaking. So how do we resolve what seems to be a contention here? How does this verse fit together? Well, I want to, I want to say that it, it, they aren't at odds. They're actually together, and let's, let, let's look at that. First of all, we need to look at the fact that uh, the first thing we need to note about this verse is that the greatest love covering a multitude of sins is Christ for us in obedience to God the Father. We would all have seen that. And we would note that this truth doesn't allow us to deal with sin lightly. Because since love covers a multitude of sins, we, sin, we tend to want to err on the side of the love rather than the side of the sin. So, you know, we maybe can tend to deal with sin not as radically as we need to because we want to love, right? We feel like these things have got to be balanced out. Sin's over here, and but uh, love's over here, and that's not the way it works. And so if we first come to this passage understanding that Christ, in obedience to God the Father, dealt radically with sin, then we will deal radically with sin as well in imitation to Christ and, and in obedience to God the Father. So coming to this passage with the right understanding first of Christ doing this for us, covering our sins, our multitude of sins forever by His blood, allows us to not, does not allow us to just deal with sin in a ho-hum way. We have to deal with it with, some, with great intentionality and, if necessary, radically. We'd also note that this passage here gives us both the example in Christ and the grace of God to love one another earnestly. Because God loves you earnestly, and so we love others earnestly. That's what it says. Keep loving one another earnestly. God keeps loving us earnestly, and we would keep loving one another earnestly. And it doesn't say, keep, one in lo- keep loving one another earnestly as long as the other person doesn't sin against you. Right? It actually notes that there's going to be a multitude of sins in the keeping of loving one another earnestly. But that isn't the reason. Uh, the re- what I've just described here is, is this first this vertical view of this passage. That's not the reason Peter wrote it. It's certainly true, and it's certainly the foundation of why we deal with others. But Peter was writing this verse on the basis or for the purpose of interpersonal relationships. So how do we resolve this line of thinking that if we don't speak, we're not loving? R.C. Sproul Jr. wrote a little bit of a blog post on love covering a multitude of sins in this passage, and I would recommend you go read it, but he has some good thoughts in here. One of the first things he would say is the same thing we've just said, is we're dealing with sin here. We're dealing with sin here. We're not dealing with maybe an unwise decision or a personality that's not quite the same as yours or something that was said innocently, but you took it the wrong way. We're, deal- we're not dealing with things that happen within relationships that aren't sin here. We're dealing with sin, and we've got to understand that. The second thing he points out, uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. points out here, that there is a kind of grace that is given in a relationship. And in a sense, we're not to sweat the small stuff. And let me explain what that looks like. A little bit. He gives the example, and I would agree. We all know that we're not to be mastered by anything, right? Mastered by the Holy Spirit. 
And yet all of us know, well, all of us know that some of us really like coffee, and I'm in that group. And I like to have coffee, and if I don't have my coffee, as others have said, not my family, but others that I know, (laughs) you need your coffee, right? Because you're not quite the same without your coffee. And so we would say, I might have an addiction to coffee. Is an addiction right? No, it's not. Not to be mastered by anything but the Holy Spirit. But you don't come to me and every day, man, I said I'd never do that again. I did it on the table that time. I did it right here this time. Cody, get it right. You you know, you're hammering me, you're rebuking me. You're sinning, you're sinning. No. We we in grace look over that. We might kid one another a little bit. Hey, you haven't had your coffee this morning, have you? But we 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 give some grace. <clears throat> we give some grace in these areas that we know that aren't aren't a huge thing. It's not that we don't love one another, it's simply that we know that there's bigger things at stake. For instance, if we know that we're a family and I'm one of those because I live right next door, but somehow it's still easy to be habitually late to different things you're supposed to be, arrive on time at at the church, and I don't drive an hour like some of y'all do. I walk five minutes, and yet sometimes it's still, I still arrive here habitually late. So what do you do? Do you come up to me and give me a Matthew 18 intervention about the fact that I'm being late and blow into me, or not? And probably not. Probably what you do is you say, well, I know sometimes Cody's a little late, so I'll plan around that a little bit. I might ask him about some things, but we deal with some things, and I think, I think Peter has that in mind here. But what Peter also has in mind, and let me just read this last paragraph from uh, Dr. Sproul here. I think he hits it well. When we are wronged, our calling is to practice a careful moral calculus. Is this offense one I should let go of? Is it among the multitude that love covers? Or is this offense grievous enough that love means confronting in grace my brother? Sadly, what we usually do is think we are practicing the former while actually holding grudges and putting miracle grow on roots of bitterness. Peace in the church calls us to, listen to this, I think it's an excellent sentence. Peace in the church calls us to under-accuse, over-repent, and over-forgive. That's really good. Peace in the church calls us to under-accuse, over-repent, and over-forgive. Let us not be afraid to call sin, sin. But let us not be slow to forgive it and to look past it. So this love that we're talking about this morning in terms of speaking to one another in love is going to be rooted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're not acting upon our own merit here. We're trusting that the Lord's going to lead us to the power of the Spirit in interpersonal relationships for the purpose of giving honor and glory to God and appropriately dealing with one another as we see sin in one another's lives. It isn't that we're just blowing one another up every single time we see something that comes in to play in one another's lives. So, a little bit of balance there, just a little bit of understanding of what Tripp is saying. What he's not saying is that we, we speak at everything. But he's also not saying we don't speak at something. So, Back on track here with the points that we've been pulling out of Leviticus 19. We've looked at confrontation is rooted in submission to the first great commandment. Number two, confrontation is rooted in the second great commandment. 
And then here we are now at number three. Confrontation is our moral responsibility in every relationship. Confrontation is our moral responsibility in every relationship. You'll note that in verse 17, uh, back over in, in Leviticus in your Bibles there. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Rebuke is something that exists in Scripture in, in a good relationship. Rebuke in Scripture exists in a good relationship. And it's a normal part of interaction and a foundational aspect of a good relationship. And the model, according to Tripp, is ongoing honesty in an ongoing relationship. Ongoing honesty in an ongoing relationship. Rebuking others doesn't mean that we're going to go home and we're going to call up everybody we've ever met or seen on Facebook or Instagram or wherever else and note something that we deem is inappropriate or maybe even sin and let them know about it. No, of course not. We know that. We're talking about this is in the context of people that we know, people that God has placed within our lives, family members, friends, neighbors, those that we have a good, strong relationship with, where there's trust that is there, where there's love that is there, where there's honesty that is there, uh, or where there's at least enough rapport that you can deal with one, deal with that person, that person can deal with you in a way that isn't going to be um, done in sin. In personal relationships, we deal biblically with what God reveals when He reveals it. In personal relationships, we deal biblically with what God reveals when He reveals it. So we deal with what is seen when God shows it to us. We're not seeking to get into one another's lives in a you know, busybody, nosy way in order just to sort of dredge something up so we can whack at them. That's not loving. But rather, in that relationship, as God shows us something, we're dealing with it in a biblical way. Let me read a paragraph from this book. Rebuke does not mean that our love is conditional. However, the self-sacrificing love of this passage, meaning the Leviticus 19 passage, exists at the intersection of patient grace and intolerance for sin. This means that I love you and I will not walk away from you at the first sign of weakness or sin. I will extend to you the same grace I have received. At the same time, however, my love for you does not close its eyes to wrongdoing. It's not say silent when sin is allowed to grow. The love I am called to extend is the love of the cross of Christ, which stands at the intersection of God's grace and His complete intolerance with sin. His intolerance does not cause God to move away. Rather, He moves toward me in redemptive love so that someday I will stand before Him without sin. This is what we are called to embody in our relationships. Anything less is to be a moral accomplice to the sin. We're not running away from it when we see it. Obviously, if it's a temptation, we're not, we're not talking about that. But rather, I'm in, I just, we've all been this way, right? We get to know somebody, we really like them. They really like us, the relationship seems to be growing, and all of a sudden we find, well, they're doing this, or they do this in their life, or they believe this, and I don't. And we tend to pull back. Oh, you're not the same as me. I thought, we were, I thought we were just alike. Oh, well, no. And if it's a sin, instead of 
running away from that sin rather than going, ah, but God has put us in relationship. There's a fostering, growing relationship here. We enjoy one another. We can speak to one another frankly about issues. Then let's imitate what God has done for us and let's move toward that. Not that we're going to move toward the sin and get in the midst of it, certainly, but move toward the person in order to help them see what God has done for them. This passage isn't applying we be another's conscience or displaying yourself in a self-righteous, rude, or judgmental attitude. It is a neighbor-to-neighbor relationship. And we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Sinners ministering to sinners. Fourth principle, confrontation is meant to be more of a lifestyle than an unusual event. It's meant to be more of a lifestyle than an unusual event. Where typically, this is something that we only do every once in a while, but if we're talking about frank issues, if we're dealing with sin in an, in an open way, within especially the context of the home, we're talking about these things, we're encouraging one another, we're strengthening one another, we're building one another up in the Lord, but we're also dealing with, honestly, what is happening in one another's life, and dealing with it in a biblical way, then this is something that's not near as difficult. But it's when we sort of, and it's not what I'm going to describe as not loving, but we sort of think we're love. We're covering a multitude of sins when we're actually not covering it. We're just sort of, as Tripp said, feeding it miracle grow, right? Or as Sproul said, feeding it miracle grow. We're not actually forgiving them. We're just sort of covering it, and then it all comes to a point, and we've got to lay it all out there. No, but rather in the context of that relationship, you know, if they offend you, practicing Matthew 18, teaching your children to practice Matthew 18 or yourself to practice that Matthew 18, dealing with stuff in a biblical way as it comes into life. Number five, we fail to confront in love because we have yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred. We fail to confront in love because we have yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred. This is the opposite side of the, uh, of the point we've already been making about love. Now we're looking at why if we don't love, we're actually hating because that's what verse 17 says. You should not hate your brother in your heart. Do not hate. And notice Scripture has no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground in the Bible between love and hate. And so you might have heard somebody say, you might have said, I probably have said, well, I don't love the guy. I certainly don't hate him. But Scripture doesn't give any neutral ground there. We're supposed to love our enemies as ourselves. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Excuse me, we're supposed to love our enemies. doesn't say as ourselves. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. But there's no, there's no, well, you don't have to love and you don't have to hate either. There's something in the middle. Now, there's not that at all in Scripture. That doesn't fit with the teaching of the Bible. And so you end up getting, instead of, if you're not loving, you're actually hating, and those, that hatred can manifest itself in subtle and passive forms of hatred. And there's two of them, and there's more that could be mentioned, but I'll mention at least two. One would be favoritism is a subtle, subtle form of hatred in the sense that you grant favor to some, but you refuse it to others. You grant favor to some, but you refuse it to others. That can be a subtle or passive form of hatred. We're supposed to. That doesn't mean you're going to have closer relationship with some and not closer relationships with others. Of course that's going to be the case. But you grant to one another the same means of grace, the same 
type of love? Are you as friendly with others? We've all had those relationships where one just seems to connect so easy and the other one has some weirdness going on and we sort of give the cold shoulder to it. Favoritism, subtle form of hatred. Number two, bearing a grudge. Going over and over in our minds what someone has done against us without ever dealing with what we are unable to cover in love or confront if sin. Bearing a grudge. Certainly more could be said on this point of subtle or passive hatred. But the main point being, and I trust the Holy Spirit will help you to see this, in the Bible there's no mythical neutral ground between love and hatred. And that's something that we can study in our own personal time with the Lord. Number six, one more after this. We fail to confront because we have yielded to more active forms of hatred. More active forms of hatred. And Tripp mentions three, and these are the three that he mentions. Injustice, gossip, and revenge. And let me read what he says here. Injustice perverts God's system of restraint. It doesn't protect, correct, or restrain the sinner. It hurts and mistreats him. Gossip doesn't lead a person to make humble confession before God or others. When I gossip, I confess the sin of another person to someone who is not involved. Gossip doesn't restrain sin. It encourages it. It doesn't build someone's character. It destroys his reputation. Gossip doesn't lead a person to humble insight. It produces anger and defensiveness. Revenge is the opposite of ministry. Ministry is motivated by a desire for someone's good. Revenge is motivated by a desire to harm him. We have forsaken our call to bring the, part, bring the person to the Lord so that he can see himself as he really is and given ourselves instead to a quest to settle the score. I would say, and I think you all would agree, that it's the passive and the subtle ones that we tend to err on. Last, last point here. And let me just recap for us for the purpose of anyone taking notes. Number one, confrontation is rooted in submission to the first great commandment. Number two, confrontation is rooted in the second great commandment. Number three, confrontation is our moral responsibility in every relationship. Four, confrontation is meant to be more of a lifestyle than an unusual event. Five, we fail to confront in love because we have yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred. Six, we fail to confront because we have yielded to more active forms of hatred. And then seven, last one here. Confrontation does not force a person to deal with you, but places him before the Lord. It does not force a person to deal with you, rather it places him before the Lord. There is much more to say about this uh, understanding of speaking the truth in love. I, I only took about half of this first of two chapters on this. Um, because I wanted to give proper time to be able to do that. But there is a, uh, I would highly recommend if you have this book, just go read uh, this chapter, and it is chapter 11, if you have that book. I think it's an excellent thing, uh, an excellent chapter on this topic of speaking the truth in love, which can be very difficult to understand. Let me close by reading a paragraph here that helps explain confrontation does not force a person to deal with you, but places him before the Lord. Confrontation does not enforce legalities. It ministers the restraining, forgiving, restoring grace of God to someone who has turned from him. It is not motivated by punishment, 
but by the hope that the Lord would free this person from the prison of his own sin to know the freedom of walking in fellowship with him. Well, the next, uh, next week we will take a look at how we are supposed to speak the truth in love. We've looked at the principles today, but we haven't gotten much into the nuts and bolts of what that actually looks like. And so I would encourage you back to come back for that time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you confronted us in our sin and you dealt with our sin in a way that we could never. That you sent the person and work of Jesus Christ upon our behalf in love for us. That you moved toward us in, redemptive, in a redemptive work because we were unable to ever move toward you. And I pray that we would model that with one another, that our love for you would grow more and more and more. And as it does, our love for one another would grow and we would desire to show your love to others. We would desire to help others. We would desire to encourage others. We do that so, Father, with wisdom, with grace, with humility, not hastily, Father, we thank you and we praise you for this day and pray now, Lord, for our time of fellowship that it would be encouraging one to one another and our time in worship in the main service would be uh, glorifying to you and edifying to our faith. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.